Well, as Father Brian mentioned, my name is Father Ryan Rojo, and I'm a priest for the Diocese of San Angelo in Texas. Just a little bit about my diocese. The Diocese of San Angelo, it's the 28 counties that encompass most of the West Texas area. So if you can imagine Texas in your mind, think directly south of the Panhandle. That's where I live and that's where I work. It's sandwiched in between El Paso and the DFW area, which if you know anything about Texas, the distance between El Paso and the DFW area is probably some 10 hours driving. And so it's quite a big area. It's quite a big area. As Father mentioned also, I'm the vocation director and the director of seminarians for our diocese, which means that I'm involved full time in the recruitment and the sustaining of new and hopefully future priests for service in West Texas. I'm very proud of our men. We currently have 13 seminarians who are studying for the priesthood in West Texas. And I can say that being vocation director and being seminarian director has been one of the most satisfying jobs I have ever done in my less than 10 years of priesthood. Uh, so all glory to God. As Father also mentioned, I was blessed to be commissioned by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, so the USCCB, to be a preacher for the National Eucharistic Revival. And so this initiative by our bishops is an attempt to remedy a sad, sad reality. The reality that only about one-third of those who call themselves Catholics and attend Mass believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. My friends, this is a deep catechetical failure. And it was through the efforts of a well-known guy, his name Bishop Robert Barron, that the USCCB started this project of Eucharistic revival. And as part of that initiative, about 50 priests from around the country were commissioned to preach parish missions and retreats for this good work of hopefully increasing faith in the Blessed Sacrament. So with this in mind, I want to spend the next three evenings meditating on a deep way on our experience with the Eucharist, on the spirituality of the Eucharist, and what, what, what we as Catholics glean and understand about the Blessed Sacrament and our tradition. And it's my hope that this time together will inspire a deeper appreciation in you for not just the Eucharist, but also the experience of Mass. But before I do that, I want to start with a story. So I'm kind of a history nerd, and it seems that recently in my life, there's come together different streams that have excited my historical curiosity for all things English. First thing was Netflix. On Netflix, there's a couple of shows called The Crown and The Last Kingdom. Maybe you yourself have seen one or both of these shows. The Crown is, of course, a show that details the life and reign of Queen Elizabeth II. And The Last Kingdom is a show that details the English monarchy in the ninth century. But this stream met up with another recent happening, the death of Queen Elizabeth II and the rise of King Charles III as a new monarch. And all this Anglophile curiosity that I've been swimming in has led, to a, has led to a trip to London that I'm planning next month with my good friend from the Diocese of Green Bay. And all these dreams have come together and led me down multiple rabbit holes on YouTube, Wikipedia, Google, so on and so forth. But in that show, The Last Kingdom, we get an insight into the life of King Alfred the Great, who is the ninth century king of the Saxons. Alfred had one goal in mind, to unite all of England, which at that time was small, fragmented kingdoms, oftentimes rival kingdoms. Alfred was Roman Catholic. But the roadblock to his vision of a united kingdom took the form of 
a group called the Danes, who were a rival group of men and women who were also pagans. They did not believe in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the Danes were led by a man named Guntram. And when the Danes would come into a Saxon city and they would raid the town, the first thing they would do is that they would go to the Catholic chapel and they would desecrate the sanctuary and oftentimes they would kill the clergy. Now in the show, The Last Kingdom, the creators put into the scene a remarkable moment. In the show, when the Danes go into the parish church, they pause. Guntram, the Viking, and his Dane men pause and they acknowledge vocally, there's something here. There's even one scene when Guntram is sitting in silence contemplating this real presence that he's feeling. And Hollywood aside, history tells us that Guntram and the Danes were eventually converted to the true Catholic faith. Now I don't know about the historical accuracy of Netflix and The Last Kingdom, but I was struck personally by the idea that even pagans recognized that there was something different in our churches, in our sanctuaries, in our places of worship. There was a presence in those communities back in ninth century England that was not present in the communities of the, pagan, of the pagan peoples. And my friends, I would think that that, of course, was the presence of Christ, perhaps even the sacramental presence of Christ. And it's this that I want to explore now, the idea of the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. How is Jesus present sacramentally? How is he present in the Eucharist? To answer the how of how Christ is present in the Eucharist, I think we first have to understand how he's not present in the Eucharist. The USCCB, before launching the Eucharistic Revival, recognized again and received the startling news that only two-thirds of Catholics who go to Sunday Mass believe in a symbolic presence of Jesus. The majority of Catholics in our pews believe that the Eucharist is really a mere symbol. It gestures towards, it points towards something greater, but that it itself is not that reality. In the minds of two-thirds of mass-going Catholics, there's no difference between the Eucharist and, let's say, golden arches. Now, what do I mean by that? You do understand that golden arches are a sign, right? They're a symbol. They're a powerful symbol. They point to something beyond themselves, but those golden arches are themselves not french fries. They're not burgers. They're not chicken nuggets. Those golden arches point you in the direction of burgers, french fries, and chicken nuggets. And similarly, in the minds of many Catholics, the Eucharist is itself not truly the presence of Christ, but it points to Jesus, maybe somewhere up in heaven. It points to Jesus somewhere beyond here. But let's look at what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says about the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. The Catechism, quoting the Council of Trent from the 16th century, says this, under the consecrated species of bread and wine, Christ himself, living and glorious, is present in a true, real, and substantial manner, his body and his blood, with his soul and divinity. There's no question here, my friends. The teaching of the Church is that the substantial, complete presence of Christ is present in the Blessed Sacrament. Period. End of story. And again from the Council of Trent, 
If anyone denies that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and consequently the whole Christ, but saith that there is only in, in it a sign or a figure of virtue, let him be anathema. Anathema is a cool old Catholic world, by the way, a little word. It literally means to be cast out, to be thrown aside. It means excommunicated. Imagine if we had such a heavy-handed approach to those Catholics who only believe that this is merely a symbol, right? I think our churches would be empty. So I proclaim to you today, alongside with the church and the magisterium of the church, that Jesus is substantially present in the Eucharist. Body, blood, soul, and divinity, the entire Christ, he is with us right here, right now. I remember growing up in youth group, we would sing this song, I Can Only Imagine. It was popularized by a band called Mercy Me about 20 years ago, and it included this line. I can only imagine what it'll be like when I walk by your side. Well, my friends, I proclaim to you today, we don't have to just imagine. Jesus is present in our Catholic churches right here, right now, both in our church here at St. Benedict's and the chapel of St. Scholastica. Jesus is here. But how do we understand that? How do we begin to unpack that, at least in a way that maybe our minds can understand? I remember once talking to a group of high school students back home about the Eucharist, and there was this young girl in the front row who was bothered by the idea of literally chewing Jesus' flesh. If you've ever studied the Reformation, you will know that some of the fathers of the Reformation were fond of calling Catholics what? Cannibals. Cannibals, because they claimed to eat the body and blood of Christ. But do we really believe that we're literally chomping on the flesh of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? We know from our catechism classes that the resurrected body of Jesus is where? Where did Christ ascend? Heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. That's what we say in our creed. And meditating on the ascension of Jesus Christ, we read in the catechism, henceforth, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. By the Father's right hand, we understand the glory and honor and divinity, wherein he who exists as Son of God before all ages, indeed as God, of one in being with the Father, is seated bodily after he became incarnate and his flesh was glorified. The body of Christ is currently at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The resurrected body of Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father. So does this mean that the resurrected body of Jesus is somehow divvied up between parishes across the world with every celebration of the Mass? I don't think so. St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest minds in our tradition, reminds us that the sacramental presence of Jesus Christ is not perceived through the senses. That means it's not perceived through sight, touch, taste, smell, or sound. But it's perceived, it's understood through the intellect through the powers of attention, memory, imagination, understanding, reflection, judging, so on and so forth, right? In other words, we're not physically munching on the resurrected body of Jesus when we receive Holy Communion. We come to understand his presence mentally. Through reason, we come to understand this mystery. I think about that magnificent hymn from the line of St. Thomas Aquinas. He authored it. It's called Tantum Ergo. Faith for all defects supplying where the feeble senses fail. 
If we're trying to understand the mystery of the Eucharist as something measurable, as something that can be observed through the senses or measured in a test tube, then we're misunderstanding the mystery. But we would proclaim that the, that the ascended presence of Christ at the right hand of the Father is the same that we receive at Mass. But then again, you might object, Father Ryan, what about Eucharistic miracles? Eucharistic miracles, of course, refer to those moments throughout the tradition of the church when the Eucharist actually did become flesh, it actually did bleed. Well, at World Youth Day, I was blessed to visit Santarem in Portugal. It's a small town about 45 minutes north of Lisbon. And in the 13th century, a woman was bothered by her husband's infidelity. He was cheating on her. So much so that she consulted a witch to figure out the solution. And the witch told her to steal a consecrated host from mass and to bring it to her. The woman did as she was told by the witch, but when she left the church, the host began to bleed intensely. She stored it in the trunk, but a bright light began to beam from that trunk. She repented for her disbelief, and she returned the host to the parish priest. And you can still see the host that bled today in Portugal. Now we have to admit that all Eucharistic miracles are a matter of personal assent, meaning that they're not necessary or essential for faith, like let's say the creed is. But I believe in them, and I would say that they are particular moments when God is confirming to us his presence in a way that's confirmed by our senses. But every celebration of the Mass, my friends, is a Eucharistic miracle because the tried and true way of understanding the sacramental presence of Christ is in this fancy word in our tradition called transubstantiation. I want to unpack that right now. In the minds of many, transubstantiation is an obstacle for understanding the Eucharist, but the reality is the church has not found a better word or a better way to understand the Eucharist in our tradition. And I think that to understand transubstantiation, you just got to understand dogs. There's many types of dogs, right? There's poodles, there's weenie dogs, there's Dobermans, there's mutts. There's many types of dogs. And we have to admit, despite the fact that some dogs are big, some are small, some are brown, some are white, some are short, some are tall, we have to admit that all dogs are dogs. There's something that these dogs have in common that despite the wide experience of dogs, we can point to all of them and say, well, that, that's a dog, right? That's a dog. We might even say that these dogs share something deeper, and this something deeper is what we would call a substance. It is the very real property that underlies all dogs. Now you can hear the word substance, right, and the word transubstantiation. And this is what transubstantiation means. Through the words of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, and through the instruments of the ordained minister's words, the substance of bread and wine are transformed. At the level of substance, there is no more bread, there is no more wine. Rather, the Eucharist is and is the total and real presence of Jesus Christ given to the church in what looks and tastes like bread and wine. The true Eucharistic miracle, my friends, is that the appearance of bread and wine remain available to our senses despite the substance changing. When the priest prays the prayers over the gifts of bread and wine, we believe that Jesus is substantially present. 
That means that the same substance that makes the risen Christ, the risen Jesus at the right hand of the Father, is also present in the Eucharist. There's no more bread, there's no more wine, but we only have Jesus, even though it might taste and appear as bread and wine. And meditating on these mysteries, the fathers of the church have said that Jesus chooses to become present to us under the appearances of bread and wine because if we experience Jesus as he is in his almighty glory, it would probably kill us. Our humanity would not be able to handle the magnificence of God. So my friends, when, you ask, when someone asks you how Jesus is present in the Eucharist, you can turn to this analogy of dogs. So now that we know in a clearer way what the Eucharist is, we need to ask, what is this real presence of Jesus present in the Blessed Sacrament? What does it demand from us as Catholics? I think this is probably the meat and potatoes of what we want to get into this evening. You might remember my suggesting that we can't know the Eucharist in any sensual way. We know the real presence through the capacities of our mind, right? Our intellect. Blessed John Cardinal Henry Newman was an ex-Anglican priest who became a Catholic at the end of the 19th century. He would go on to be a cardinal of the Catholic Church. Now, I think that Cardinal Newman, next to Thomas Aquinas, is probably the greatest mind in our tradition as Catholics. And blessed Cardinal Newman used to write a lot about a lot of different things, including topics of how we know what we know as human beings and how we know what we know as Catholics. And in understanding how we know things, he made a distinction that I think is very helpful when it comes to the Eucharist between what he called notional assent and real assent. So let's unpack that a bit. Notional assent is concerned with the abstract. Examples of notional assent mean that you know that two plus two equals what? Four. It's heady. It's the intellectual pursuit of knowledge. That's what he calls notional assent or notional knowledge. And notional assent is important, right? But we cannot know about the real presence of Jesus Christ through notional knowledge only, right? Because again, you can't measure this in a beaker. You can't test it using the scientific method. We know the real presence of Jesus Christ through what Newman calls real assent. This is a knowledge, my friends, that is personal. This is a knowledge that touches on the capacities of the soul. For example, you know that your wife or your husband love you. You might know that your children love you. And you know this in a way different than you know that two plus two equals four, right? And for Newman, we Catholics are called to understand the real presence with real assent. Because we're, under, we're called to understand the real presence as a personal thing, right? Because the Eucharist is not just an it, but he's a person. And he's a person who demands something from us. And I think, brothers and sisters, that we come to know the Eucharist in a very real way through the processes of real assent through an old idea called reverence. I think an obstacle to faith in the Eucharist is the lack of Eucharistic reverence. It's not uncommon for me to go into many churches throughout the country, and when I go into those churches and I experience those churches, it's not a place centered around the real presence of Jesus Christ, but it's a place that operates and acts like a dance hall or a meeting of the junior league or something like that. 
And in many places, the Mass is not celebrated as an experience of the Paschal mystery, but it's almost like a dirge. It's almost like something we have to truck through, if we will. It's like going through mud. So what are some ways that we can deepen our sense of reverence and grow in this real notion, this real ascent, this real idea, this real belief? There's this document in our tradition as Catholics called the General Instruction of the Roman Missal. And it's a document that our church gives us and informs us how we as believers are called to celebrate the Mass. And what does this document recommend to foster greater reverence for Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament and in the experience of the Mass? Well, how about silence? This is what the General Instruction says about silence. Even before the celebration itself, it is commendable that silence be observed in the church in the sacristy, in the vesting room, and the adjacent areas, so that all may dispose themselves to carry out the sacred action in devotion and in a fitting manner. Do we reverence silence in our experience and in our worship? Or do we see silence as something we just have to power through? Do we see silence as something that we just have to get through so that we can start talking to each other, so that we can fill the void with noise? How about bows? The church says this about bows. When receiving Holy Communion, the communicant bows his or her head before the sacrament as a gesture of reverence and receives the body of the Lord from the minister. Are you conscious to bow as a sign of your understanding that this is truly the presence of Christ? Or do you just waltz up to the priest and amen? How about genuflections? A genuflection made by bending the right knee to the ground signifies adoration and therefore it is reserved for the most blessed sacrament. All who pass before the most blessed sacrament genuflect unless they are moving in procession. I gotta laugh sometimes when I'm saying mass at different places and people are entering the pews, you kind of get a cute little curtsy, right? Now, of course, if you're not able to genuflect, you're not able to genuflect, and I reverence that, but if you have that capacity, the church calls us to go all the way down on our right knee and reverence of the real presence of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. So how could you incorporate genuflections and be more conscious of that action? How can that deepen your sense of reverence so that you can know in a very real way that this is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? How about other popular devotions, right? When the priest raises the host in the chalice in the celebration of Mass, there used to be a pious tradition of silently saying to yourself, my Lord and my God. These words are found on the lips of St. Thomas the Apostle when he encounters the risen Christ. Do you remember the scene? Jesus breaks into the room. Thomas had been doubting. And Jesus says, put your hands into my side and feel the wounds. And what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. Because again, this is an experience of the risen presence of Christ. Is that something that you might be able to incorporate into your experience of Mass? Or think about this. How about when you're driving past a Catholic church? I remember when I was a kid and I was traveling with grandpa and we would pass St. Joseph's Parish in Odessa, Texas. He would make the sign of the cross out of reverence for Jesus sacramentally present in the Eucharist. Do you do anything to reverence the presence of Jesus in the church? Of course you have time. You should make a visit to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. But even that simple gesture is powerful and it had an effect on me, had an effect on me as a young man. St. Francis of Assisi, when he was walking around Assisi, would make a bow of the waist when he would pass a church. 
reverencing the fact that Jesus was present in there. Also, I would point to the quality of hymns that we're singing at church. How are the songs we're singing in church affirming or discouraging our belief in the Eucharist? I'm talking about hymns that refer to Eucharist just as bread or as wine without any attempt to qualify that statement. These songs are doing no favors to God's people's belief in the real presence, so much so that the U.S. bishops recently drew up a list of problematic church music that they're discouraging congregations from singing. How about the way that we refer to the consecrated species of the Eucharist? After consecration, do we call it bread? Do we call it just wine? Oh, Jack is the minister of the bread this Sunday. Or do we call it the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, out of a deep reverence for what this really is? I want to address another misunderstanding. In some Catholic circles, there's a silly sentiment that the Eucharist is for eating and not adoring. A lot of people will say something to the effect of, Jesus said, take and eat. He didn't say, take and look. But of course, think about this. How many of you have ever been to a French bakery or maybe a Mexican bakery for those of us in the Southwest? What madman would not appreciate the smell of the shop? Or what madman would not appreciate the artistry that goes into making the perfect croissant or the perfect bagel? Or think about wine. I was never much of a wine drinker before seminary, but I'm impressed by the entire ritual of wine, right? Pouring, swirling, sniffing, huh? I would never just eat a dozen of my grandma's homemade tortillas, like a ravenous wolf. There, of course, would be something magical in me just appreciating the entire process that my grandmother put into making a dozen tortillas out of love. So in the same way, how much more are we called to appreciate, even with our senses, the miracle of the Eucharist, to gaze upon him, to adore him? Yes, the Blessed Sacrament is for eating, and we truly become what we eat, but there's also power in just being in the presence of him and allowing that presence to overwhelm us, just like bread might overwhelm you, just like tortillas or wine might overwhelm you. If those things overwhelm you, how much more the presence of Christ? Give him a shot. Sit with him. I think another obstacle to belief in the real presence is this false dichotomy, this false wedge that some people drive between the Eucharist and the real presence of the Eucharist and Jesus and the poor. And I think, my friends, that this is a legitimate complaint that's lodged against the church sometimes. I remember that line from St. John Chrysostom, if you cannot see Christ in the beggar of the church door, you will not see Christ in the chalice. It's a beautiful sentiment. But I do think that we as Catholics have obligations on both sides of this conversation because it would be a tragedy again to drive a wedge between the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and the presence of Christ in the poor and the marginalized, right? On the contrary, those two realities of the real presence of Christ are best in conversation with each other. Our obligations to the poor flow from our being nourished by the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And it's the experience of the Eucharist that takes us back to our obligations of the poor and in nourishing the downtrodden. I love this quote from Pope Benedict XVI, another personal hero of mine. He writes this, a Eucharist that does not pass over into the concrete practice of love is intrinsically fragmented, meaning that it's torn apart. Again, a Eucharist that does not pass over into the concrete practice of love is intrinsically fragmented. So my friends, in conclusion, 
Always be conscious of the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. Jesus is substantially present in the Eucharist, not maybe in a fairly physical way, but the entire presence of Christ is here. Be mindful of how we come to know the real presence of Christ through what Newman called real ascent, right? With bows, with silence, with genuflections, huh? What are some other devotional opportunities? Maybe crossing yourself as you drive by the church. That might be a good one. But also be mindful of this idea of real presence and our responsibilities to social justice. To receive the Eucharist fruitfully is to become what we receive. And the sacrifice of Christ offered is for the entire renewal of the whole world. To find more episodes, you can now stream, listen, and subscribe on your favorite platform.